Philippians 4, 2-9, hear the word of the Lord. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All of us have had the experience of being with people who were in conflict, but not open conflict. They weren't necessarily fighting at the time, but as we were with them, we picked up that there was something not right in the relationship. Maybe it was a, a coldly married couple, or maybe it was a sports team where everybody was playing for his or her own glory, and not for the team. Or maybe it was a church where people brushed past each other with formal greetings. And we go away from those situations with some sort of a, a sense that something's not right there. There wasn't any fighting, but there's a vibe. There's, a, there's an unpleasant experience of, of conflict, of tension. Well, as we have read through this mostly very upbeat letter, we, we keep picking up some, some clues about some things that weren't necessarily right in the church. We, we begin to scratch our heads and say, Paul, why do you keep emphasizing unity and thinking the same thing and having the same mindset? Why are you talking so much about the importance for our joy of being unified? And now finally, at the beginning of chapter 4, we find out what was wrong. And very unusual, in fact unique, in all of Paul's letters is his naming names very specifically about problems in the church and who were having those problems. And in these verses, he names two women who were very influential women, leaders in some capacity in the church, we don't know anything more about them. He names one man by name, Clement. We don't know anything about him either, except that he was what's described here, a co-worker of Paul. And he also mentions, curiously, somebody whom he calls his true companion. And all of a sudden he addresses his true companion, and we don't know who that true companion was. But we have three names here, two women, one man, and then a description of another man. So what we know about them, the women were Euodia and Syntyche in verse 2. The man was Clement, and then the other was the true companion. But what we do know about them is that they were 
Paul's companions in the work of the gospel. That's how he describes them. He says, my fellow workers, and he, he names all of these. He says they labored side by side with him. So the women labored side by side with Paul. Clement labored side by side, the true companion and other fellow workers. They labored side by side with Paul in the work of the gospel. We also know that they were true Christians. Paul considered them all to be genuine Christians, above reproach in, in most ways. Because he says here, in, in verse 3, he says, I ask you, true companion, help these women. So he's enlisting the, the, the help of this true companion. Labored side by side with me in the gospel, Clement, the rest of my fellow workers. Then he says, whose names are in the book of life. That's quite a statement. Paul is saying, I am certain that their names are in the book of life. Now, what is the book of life? The book of life is an interesting concept because it shows up for the first time in Exodus, and then it shows up again in the Psalms, it shows up in Daniel, uh, it shows up in Luke on Jesus' lips, in, um, in an indirect way it shows up in Hebrews, and then several times it shows up in Revelation. So this is, a, this is an almost Genesis to Revelation concept, an Exodus to Revelation concept, the book of life. What is the book of life? Well, the book of life is the registry in heaven of those who are gods, those who belong to gods. And so here he's saying they are in the book of life, no doubt about it. Their names are written in the book of life. However, in spite of that, in spite of being leaders in the church, in spite of being Paul's co-workers, striving together with Paul side by side for the gospel, in spite of being genuine Christians, the two women were in conflict. And apparently this conflict was big enough that it was involving the whole church. Now, we don't know how big the church was. But the women were prominent enough, influential enough, and their conflict big enough that in some way it had involved the whole church. And so Paul took this extreme measure of naming them and their conflict here in this letter. Now, we have his call to them, and it, it's in verse 2. He says, I entreat Eodia, and I entreat Syntyche. He addressed each of them individually. So Paul was not taking sides here. You see, that wasn't the matter. He wasn't coming in as a referee saying, okay, you did this right, you did this wrong, she's right, she's wrong, or something like that. That's not what he was doing. He was appealing to something bigger. And it's something bigger that we have seen throughout this whole letter. Now, our translation doesn't, doesn't allow us to see the connection there as much. But he, she, he says, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche. The translation here says, to agree in the Lord. And we have seen this expression a number of times, but normally it's translated to have to do with our mind, our thinking. And it's the same expression that we find back in chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So if we're going to be more literal in the translation of chapter 4, verse 2, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, what mind is that? And we've seen this throughout a number of times, this idea of a mind or a mindset. And that mindset, Paul went on to describe in chapter 2, he said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility 
count others more significant than yourselves. Aodia, count Syntyche more significant than yourself. Syntyche, count Aodia as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests or her own interests, but also to the interests of others. Aodia, don't look for your own interests only. Look for the interests of Syntyche. Syntyche, the same. And then he says in verse 5 of chapter 2, have this mind, this mindset, this way of thinking among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on with what some people call a hymn of talking about what Jesus did. That Jesus being in the form of God did not regard, regard equality with God, something to be held on to, but, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He became a man. He became a servant. He gave his life on the cross and he was buried. And then God raised him from the dead and gave him that name which is above every name, the highest place, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the mindset that is being, being, being urged upon all Christians in this whole letter. And now it's being applied to these two women. Women have this mindset. Now the previous calls to unity make sense in the light of this conflict. Now we understand what was that vibe we were picking up throughout this letter. Why so much emphasis on unity? Now we know that in this admirable church, in many ways, there was this conflict and these two women were at the middle of the conflict. Now, um, when we have conflicts in the church, um, especially among leaders, Oftentimes those conflicts are about how to do church, how to do ministry, how we are to get the gospel out, how we are to disciple believers, how we are to worship. And there's something that happens with Christian leaders, and it's this. When we, when we begin to have conflicts about methodology, about how to do, to live out the gospel among us, we can very easily deceive ourselves and equate our preferred way of doing things with the gospel itself. And when that happens, here's what happens. We can't back down because now all of a sudden, this is not about my ideas. This is not about my methodologies. This is not about my preference. This is about the gospel. And of course, I'm not going to back down from defending the gospel. And then when the other side does the same thing, deceiving itself, that its way is the gospel way, there's no way to back down. And in addition, it's easy to be critical of others. Now, um, um, we should see here that these kind of questions, these ministry questions, these tactical questions, these methodological questions, these questions of practical ways of how to do ministry can always be worked out can always be worked out if we have the mindset of Christ. You see, that's why Paul is not saying, oh, maybe you should try this. Or Mayo Syntyche is right about that, but Eodia is right about this. Why don't you put these two methodologies together and, and see what you can do here? No, he says, no, there's something more basic. And you'll be able to work out these things if you can get the base right, if you can have this mindset of Christ. We just received a member today. And all of the questions that are asked of members are, are beautiful. The first ones have to do with the gospel. Do you believe you're a sinner? Do you believe in Jesus? Um, do you rely upon him? Do you promise to, to support the church? But then the last one says this. Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study, that is to say, further its purity and 
peace. In the uh, National Presbyterian Church of Mexico, they have promises for members as well. And I actually like theirs better in this regard, this last one. And it goes like this. Listen to this. Do you covenant with this church to conduct yourself according to its norms and joyfully submit to its discipline, seeking its peace and prosperity and treating the other members with the tenderness and faithfulness that is fitting for children of God and members of the same family? You see, that promise, I would, I would refer to that many times when people would come to me, uh, members of the church come to me and say, Pastor, so-and-so is doing this, or so-and-so is doing that, and we're having a problem. And I would always call them back to this, call them back to this question of treating each other with the tenderness and the faithfulness that is befitting those who are children of God and members of the same family. You see, that's the appeal here. And if we do that, there is no conflict that we might have, and we will have conflicts, but there is no conflict that we might have that we cannot resolve. Now, that, that, that call to unity then flows into a call to gentleness, gentleness. But first, there is this question of joy once again in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And indeed, it's again because he already said that in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then uh, verse 4 of chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord. And then he adds what? Always. Again, I will say, rejoice, that's three times, commands, Christians, we are commanded to rejoice. And that's not just a feeling, that's an activity. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Now, I want you to see, I want you to see, as we've seen throughout this letter, that joy and unity are, are connected very, very closely. When, when Paul in chapter 2, verse 2, appeals to them to be unified, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And you know how that is. If there's, if, there's, if there's not unity, there's not joy either. If there's not unity in a marriage, if there's not unity in a family, if there's not unity on a team, in a school, in a neighborhood, in a church, in a country, there is not joy either. And so unity is one of the ways we experience joy. And here we have the bedrock once again of joy. And what's that bedrock? The Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, Paul's situation, where was Paul when he wrote this? In prison. So Paul's situation was not good. The Philippian situation doesn't seem like it was good either. It looks like they were being persecuted. So uh, Paul's situation was not pleasant. The Philippian situation was not easy. But still, they had a reason to rejoice. And what was that? The Lord. The Lord. That's right. And we have that as well. No matter what's going on in our lives, we have that same reason if we are believers in Christ. We can rejoice in the Lord. In, in, in this life, things go up, things go down. Things are good, things are bad. Uh, but one thing that never changes is the fact that Jesus was born and lived and died and rose and ascended and reigns and is coming again. Rejoice in that, because that's the solid bedrock of, bedrock of Christian joy. Now, there's a, there's a, a transition here, and sometimes at the end of Paul's letters, he, he piles up admonitions about Christian living, and 
sometimes you can see the connection, sometimes you can't, but here we have unity flowing into joy, and then joy flowing into what's translated here as reasonableness, reasonableness. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Um, I, th I think it might get at it a, a bit better if we would translate that gentleness. Let your gentleness. So joy, joy flows out in gentleness toward others. And I, I, I think that's probably a, a, a translation that would get at it perhaps a little better for us. This is a, not a, a common word. In fact, it's the only time it appears in the New Testament, uh, except for one other time when a related word shows up in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, where Paul says this, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face, etc. So I appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So it's not so much the reasonableness of Christ, although he's eminently reasonable, of course, but the gentleness of Christ. So joy flowing out toward others in gentleness. We live in a, in a rough world, don't we? We live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And, and, and one of, the, and one of the, the simplest things that Christians can do to distinguish ourselves as Christians, well, a couple things. One is to have joy. That's, that's one distinguishing characteristic. But the other is to treat others with gentleness. That's an uncommon characteristic. And if we will do that simple thing, treat others with gentleness, no matter how they are treating us, then that will distinguish us as Christians. Now, there's a, another curiosity here uh, where all of a sudden he just says, the Lord is at hand at the end of verse 5. And once again, it's, it's not entirely clear what the connection is. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Or, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. It's in the middle of this idea of gentleness and the idea of not being anxious. So, what is it supposed to ground? I'm not sure, and it certainly grounds either one. Be gentle. The Lord is at hand. Don't worry. The Lord is at hand. Either way. Now, um, when it says the Lord is at hand, that can be taken in a couple of different ways. But, but... I think the idea here, by the way, the Lord almost always in the New Testament is Jesus. And the Lord is at hand probably means he's almost back. He's coming and he's almost here again. The Lord is at hand. Not so much that he's always with us, which is true. But the idea is, is that he's coming. And, and the time for his coming has become very, very close, which is the mentality of, of Scripture and the mentality of Christians throughout the ages. That no matter, matter how long it takes for him to come back, he's at hand. And, and relative to, to all of eternity, he'll be here in the blink of an eye. So we have, so far, we have unity, we have joy, we have gentleness. And then we have probably what are some of the most famous verses of uh, Philippians. Ones which I quote to myself when I can't sleep at three in the morning and things are going in my head, and I'm, I'm getting anxious. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here we have a prohibition, we have a commandment, and we have a result. The prohibition is not to be anxious about Anything, anything, 
That, that's what it says. Not to be anxious about anything. That actually sounds a lot like something Jesus said. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. He also said, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Because tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So this is very similar to what Jesus said. Don't be anxious about anything. This is not a this is not a hard commandment to explain or a prohibition to explain. I think it's pretty obvious what this means. But it is hard to conceive of actually living like this, isn't it? Of not being anxious about anything. Not being anxious about the future at all. Now, um, imagine that. How would your life be if anxiety were just not a part of your life? How would that be? Wouldn't that be amazing? That's what it says here. Don't be anxious about anything. But it doesn't just say, don't do that. It tells us what to do in place of that. And it's equally totalizing. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests. And here he piles up different words that have to do with prayer. He mentions prayer and supplication and thanksgiving and requests. And interestingly, he said, let them be known to God. He has already said, let your gentleness be known to others. So let your gentleness be known to everyone and let your requests be made known to God. And somebody might say, well, doesn't God already know? Why do we need to, to make known our request? Doesn't he already know everything? And of course, people ask that question, why should we pray? If God already knows, let me direct you once again to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, Matthew 6, 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the, the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. And then he taught us this prayer, our Father in heaven. Did you see that? You see, what was the reason for praying? Because our Father already knows what we need before we ask him. This was not a problem for Jesus in terms of prayer. He didn't say, oh, well, he already knows, so why bother? He said, he already knows. He already knows. So pray like this, our Father. Inasmuch as, as we had fathers, and inasmuch as those fathers were loving and, and, and did the best for us, they pretty much already knew what we needed. But they delighted whenever we would come to them and say, Daddy, I need this. Let your request be made known to God. But we have this, this, this opportunity, this privilege of calling God Father. Jesus shocked people when he prayed and when he taught and when he referred to my Father. And then his disciples said, teach us to pray. And he said, when you pray, say this. The same thing that I say, say this, our Father. Your Father knows what you need, so go to him, so ask him. Let your requests be made known to him. He knows them, so let them be known to him. Make them known. Tell him about them and mix them in with abundant 
thanksgiving. The result is that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. This is exactly what we need, isn't it? When we begin to be anxious, what goes crazy? Our hearts and our minds. Our, our hearts begin to pound and our minds begin to invent every worst case scenario possible. And we begin to be anxious about things that are never going to happen. Some things that can, can't even ever happen. Our minds go crazy. We need, we need a guard. We need a sentinel placed over our hearts to say thus far and no farther. A sentinel over our minds to say don't go there. You're not allowed to go there. Stop where you are. We'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, easy to say, and we should recognize a couple of things. One is that some people are just naturally given to worry more than others. And this is, this is harder for them than it is for those who tend to be anxious less. Uh, and, and also, this is not a, a magic wand. This is not just a formula that you, that you do and automatically. Sometimes the peace will come very, very quickly and very, very suddenly, and it will banish anxiety immediately. And other times it will be an ongoing concern. It will be an ongoing struggle to replace with anxiety with prayer. But whenever that anxiety seeks to rush back and to take hold of you again, take it to the Lord in prayer. And sooner or later, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There was a joke I heard, oh, decades ago. I'm not even sure why I remember it. And it was about a guy who worried a lot. And he, he was telling his friend, I'm, I'm not worrying anymore. I've taken care of my worries. I, I'm paying somebody $50,000 a year. And this was decades ago. 50000 is a lot now, but it was a lot more then. I'm paying somebody $50,000 to do all my worrying for me. And the friend said, wow, that's great, so you don't have to worry anymore. No, I don't have to worry anymore. He, he, does it, he does it for me. And then the friend asked, well, well, how do you pay for that? And he said, I don't know, that's his worry. <laughs> okay, yeah it's, yeah, it's mildly funny, but uh, maybe the reason I remember it is because when I come to Scripture... I find that we all have that person. We all have that person who can do the worrying for us. In 1 Peter, the apostle wrote, 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him before, because he cares for you. You see, we all have that person, and he doesn't charge $50,000 to take our burdens here it says, it's very descriptive, isn't it? Take those anxieties and, and cast them onto Jesus because he can handle those. He can worry those for you. He can take care of those. Cast them on him. Now, we come to the conclusion of this, this ethical part about Christian living. And we have, once again, another finally brothers. It's, it's kind of curious because Paul wrote in chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, brothers, 
rejoice in the Lord. And then he didn't conclude. It sounded like he was winding down, but he didn't. And then in verse 8 of chapter 4, finally, brothers, and he doesn't quite conclude again. But remember, Paul was dictating this, and he, 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 it was written down, and once it was written down, it was written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it was written down, and, and the dictation was sent off. And so maybe he was going to conclude, but then he had another final matter that we'll take up next week. But here he says, finally, brothers, finally, and here he gives a list. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This flows out of this idea, we'll guard your hearts and your what? Your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, your mind is never empty, is it? Your mind is always thinking about something, isn't it? So when you're anxious, take it to the Lord in prayer, but then fill up that mind with other things. Put something in the place of that anxiety. And what can you put in the place of that anxiety? Here's some things about which to think, about which to meditate. Now, um, after, after emphasizing the Christian mindset mindset throughout this this letter now we have christian thinking and where it says think about these things it's actually a different word than we've seen throughout this letter about thinking and i'm kind of surprised i'm like paul why why didn't you use the same word you had us going with the same word about this christian mindset but then i realized he's talking about something related but a little different he's he's not talking about the general mindset of the christian to humble ourselves and let god exalt us to serve others even if it's, if it's sacrificing ourselves. He's talking about what we, what we do with this gray matter, about what we think, on what we focus our thought life. And here he gives us a list. And this list, this list uh, actually, if a Roman would have read this, or a Jew would have read this, they would have said, yeah, we recognize these as good things. In fact, today, if, if a, an atheist would read these or somebody from another religion would read these, everybody would kind of say, yeah, those are, those are good things. Those are generally good things. But we ought not to see this as kind of generic ethics because this is coming from the pen of Paul. And so when, when he says something like, whatever is true, he's speaking about a specific thing, a specific, a, a specific body of truth that's found in the Scripture. Whatever is honorable, honorable in the sight of the Lord Jesus, whatever is just in the sight of God, whatever is pure before the God who is revealed in Scripture, etc., etc. This is, this is, these, are, these are characteristics that many would recognize, but here they have specific Christian content, and we know that because he followed it up with this. What In verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things. Practice these things. So he says, think on these things and practice these things. Think about these things and what you have learned and seen and heard in me. Practice the things that I have done in my life. Now, this may strike us. This is the second time where Paul says, imitate me. Imitate me. He said it in chapter 3, verse 17. And this might strike us as a bit presumptuous. But 
it's necessary that somebody be an example of what it means to follow Jesus. We need to have examples, don't we? We need to have to we need to be able to see and hear and observe somebody who is following Jesus so that we know what it looks like in a human. And Paul says, well, that's what I'm doing. I'm following Jesus. So you follow me, and I'm following Jesus, and you will be following Jesus. And particularly, that's what Christian leaders are by definition. What is a leader? A leader is someone who is worth following. And so a Christian leader is one who should be following Jesus so that if you follow that leader, you will get closer to Jesus. And that was the problem in the church here. There were some some women leaders who were not having the mindset of Jesus. And so if you followed them in their conflict, you would be taking sides instead of getting closer to Jesus. So this is what Christian leaders need to be by definition. Those who lead others toward knowledge of maturity, knowledge of Christ and maturity by word and by action. And I want you to notice that there's a result here too. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. As we pray in verse 7, it says the peace of God will guard us. And as we think about these things and practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. So we have the peace of God and we have the God of peace. And of course, this is how the letter started, grace and peace be to you. This is how Jews greet each other to this day. Peace be with you. Shalom be with you. Well-being be with you. Prosperity in the Lord be with you. The God of Shalom will be with you. And the Shalom of God will be with you. So here we have, as we come towards the end of this letter, with one final matter to see next week, we have a summary of Christian living. And what's that Christian living look like? It's unity. It's joy. It's gentleness. It's peace. It's goodness. And if we live these things in our lives and in our church, we will never, ever need for someone to come to us and to urge us to get along in the Lord. Most of my friends who are pastors, by this time in their ministries, and many of them decades earlier, have been through at least one meat grinder experience in the church. Sometimes, at least partly, their own doing, but many times because of other leaders in the church that were not living out the mindset of Jesus. And I have to say with great joy that I have never been through such a meat grinder conflict experience in any of the churches in which I've been. And if it's all the same to you, <laughs> I would just as soon keep it that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the mindset of Jesus that we can have. And if we do, and if we live that out among us, we can experience a little bit of heaven on earth in your church. We pray for our church that we would never need this kind of rebuke from somebody who would say, you're not exhibiting the mind of Jesus, but rather 
that our unity, that our joy, that our gentleness, that our freedom from anxiety, that our peace, that our meditation on that which is good, and our practice of the best examples would be evident among us. And, O oh, God of peace be with us, and peace of God reign upon us and over us. In Jesus' name, amen.